Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, VJ, DJ, TV host, and iconic music personality, Stu Jeffries. Of course, Stu is a very well-known as popular host of Good Rockin' Tonight. He was a VJ on that and Switchback and so much more. So uh, how are you doing, Stu? Thanks for joining me. I'm very well, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. I knew I wanted to do radio when I was, oh God, like six, seven, eight years old. I can remember being a nice. kid and just being captivated by it. I loved it so much. And I didn't think that there was an opportunity for me to do it. I thought only special people got to do that. When you're a kid, you think all these mm. weird things, right? Like it must, you yeah. must have have to have been born with a really deep voice <laughs> and a cool name and a, you know, and that's, that was some of the prerequisites. I never I had no idea that I could do it. And then when somebody said, yeah, no, there's a broadcasting school and you can, as soon as I was aware yeah. of that, then it was all about saving money to do it. Um, once the course was finished, um, I made a bunch of little reel to reels. Uh, with my audition and sent them out to any radio station I could think of uh, oh, or with from from the broadcast dialogue magazine at the time it wasn't called broadcast dialogue if I, I think it was just called broadcasting and at the back there were mm. the names and addresses of program directors and stations all across Canada so I just randomly you know picked a whole bunch and sent it off and got rejected by everybody and for good reason mm. uh, and then yeah. my tape ended up on the desk of uh, Gary Lawrence who was the new PD at CJGX in Yorkton, and he had just fired a guy, and my tape just happened to be there. So <laughs> good enough for me. Do you want to come down and work? And I was like, yeah. And uh, so that was 1979. That's when it started, and I've uh, I've been doing it ever since. How did you end up with the Good Rockin' Tonight gig? I was in Regina at the time. I so I was in, I was in Yorkton for about a year and a half, and then Regina at CJME. I was it was 1980. I guess I want to say 84, 85, something like that. And uh, CBC, it was my third year in Regina. CBC had put up this notice on uh, radio stations, bulletin boards everywhere uh, that uh, they were auditioning for a show. Uh, and the show was called The Fame Game. And it was a, a contest that CBC had put together, a battle of the bands in the capital cities of each province. Yeah, uh, I'm and familiar they, with that. Yeah. Right. So they'd showcase the bands. Um, my showcase was uh, Northern Pikes was in there. Um, nice. Noise and the Boys, uh, Dana Radford's band. They were so cool. Um, I can't uh, Motet. There were a couple of us I can't remember. Anyway, uh, so it's the Battle of the Bands thing, and they were looking for a host. And the uh, I looked at I remember, I can see it to this day. I'm looking at this notice on the bulletin board going, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, and hmm. uh, Dave Mitchell, who was doing Afternoon Drive in Regina at the time, walked by, and he said, are you going to go? And I said, nah. He said, well, I'm going. He said, if I'm going, then you're going. So I said, <laughs> okay, fine, good deal. Let's just do it. And I went there for the audition, and you just sat in this room, and there was a camera on you. Uh, and the production assistant, and she had a stopwatch. And she basically said, well, all I want you to do is look down the camera lens and talk for five minutes. Don't stop. Even if you think you've run out of stuff, just try, just keep talking. So it was an, it, I guess it was a really rough sort of example of how do you look in, in the camera and how fast are you on your feet, I suppose. Right. Uh, and I said, okay, cool. And I started talking about radio because it's the thing that I knew and I loved and how I got into it. And, da, 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 da. and I remember at one point I stopped and I said, I, I guess that's it. And she, <laughs> she hit the stopwatch. She went, Four minutes and 57 seconds. <laughs> that's very oh, wow. good. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, I, I thought, okay, that's cool. It was a fun experience and I'm glad for it. The next yeah. day I got a call from Steve Glassman, who was producing the show that said, you know what? As soon as you were in front of the camera doing your thing, we knew that you were the guy for the job. And I was like, oh my God, really? Good. 
yeah. yeah. And so I got the Fame Game host, and then Ken Gibson, who was a, the producer of Good Rock and Tonight in Vancouver, saw that show that I hosted and uh, hung on to the tape. I guess he saw something in me that he liked. Uh, and um, when Mulligan left the show uh, in 85, I want to say, um, yep. he phoned me and asked me if I'd be interested. And to be honest with you, Dan, I was like, I loved radio so much. And when videos were really starting to crash through, I was kind of an anti-video guy because I found it took away from the imagination of the song. Uh, hmm. and that people were, I thought it was just like a fad, like it's not going to last too long. Right. I don't know anything. Yeah. Uh, but I was very staunch radio guy. Uh, but I yeah. said, sure, because, you know, the money was great and, uh, I was broke and, you know, I said, I, of course I'd be interested. And it ended up being, a. I was on there for eight and a half seasons. <laughs> so it was well, yeah, crazy it was, how it happened. It was great. And then you wonder about how those things happen, but you had that, you know, maybe you're a bit raw. You're not used to TV, but you've got that effervescent personality. You've got that smile on your face. You had the blonde locks. Blonde you, know, locks. And you, you know were... what I think too, and also a certain element, and I'm not being funny here, a certain element of stupidity. Like you're too stupid to be scared, you know, and, and, <laughs> and you're so uh, into what you do. I was such a proud radio guy and was very confident in my abilities, um, yeah. even though I had no business being confident, right? It's all a great big yeah. cover-up. Oh. Uh, but so, you know, I think that element of being too dumb to know any better um, enters mm -hmm. into that a lot too. Like it, I think there's a lot to be said for this. Well, I don't even really like this medium in the first place, but why not, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. you, you get to go a little crazy and before you know it, it works out the video craze came in and, and the bands were cranking out the videos and then the announcers, yeah. the VJs, it gave background and commentary on them. So there was a whole sort of package of things right. that came along with that, right? Getting information. Right. And, yes. And, 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 and it wasn't as like, I mean, I think now um, the information that we have available to us within seconds uh, hmm. is you know, if I had that, imagine having that information, <laughs> you know, in the eighties, well, cause I wrote the scripts to the show and it was all about trying to yeah. gather as much information as you can. A new magazine would come in, maybe the new musical express from England would come in and you would just devour it for information. And yet by the time you got it, it was already three weeks old, but that was how the information was processed. Right. Whereas now, yeah. boy, now you put yeah, the show together. It's way. like, there's no excuse to not have every, every corner covered. Yeah. I guess I'm glad that I didn't hear, you know, what the industry was thinking of me taking over for Mulligan, <laughs> who was so well-respected in Vancouver. And, and here's this kid out of Regina and who is he? And then, you know, I found out yeah. a little further down the road that just about everybody auditioned for that job at every radio station across Canada, TV station. Oh, and wow. I had no idea. So, yeah. you know, the, here's me coming out to Vancouver and it's like, who is this guy? Um, and why him and not yeah. me? I think, and fair enough. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and Mulligan had always been very respectful to me and, uh, and I, to him. And, um, he at one Good. time had said, you know what? I have no, uh, I don't hold any animosity towards Stu. He's made that show his own. And when I heard those words, I thought, thanks. That's nice. That's really nice yeah. of you to say that. And it did feel from that point on that. Yeah, this is my show and I'll, I'll do it my way. And if I don't, you know, and here's another thing, God, if the internet was around then or, or social media, I would have been ripped to shreds <laughs> like there'd be nothing left of me like because people love terry so much they wrote yeah. and but my producer to his credit uh, can i love him for that he never let me have access to the letters that were really nasty um yeah because they were nasty <laughs> like it's who the Ow. hell is this and i'm never watching the show again and it's all funny God. So when you were on that show, were the videos playlisted the same as radio? Like, was there a rotation and priority and program director saying you got to play this and this? No. Well, it was Ken's show. He basically decided what videos were going to be shown. And then it was also 
what groups were rolling into town, what interviews we had. Um, and then he would match that with their latest videos. So, uh, it was always new. It was always fresh. Um, and it was, and he, he kind of stayed away from, uh, the hip hop and rap scene, uh, and just kind of kept it pretty, pretty mainstream, you know, and he was older. Like I think Ken, when I started there, I was 24, Ken was 50, uh, and maybe, mm-hmm. maybe past that. And you would think a guy that age into videos and stuff, you know, and he was very, it's an English guy, super proper, super, uh, you know, yeah. uh, buttoned down. And you would think yeah. this guy, no rock. And like he did, and he, <laughs> he, he knew charts. He knew he had an ear for a hit. Um, wow. and he, yeah, he put that show together, um, uh, every week with sort of that in mind, who did he see as up and coming? Uh, and again, what interviews, uh, that we yeah. had done and were available. I did watch the behind the scenes video from your 500th episode in 1993, I guess it was. Right. And it looked like you, you were fun. You were having fun. And there was lots of people around like um, your floor directors and all the people, yeah. the producers and stuff. So you were pretty looked after there, I would say. For sure. And I got to love that video because it's such a scrapbook, um, you know, a, a 30, a, a minute and a half scrapbook of who we worked with at the time. And um, yeah. And you could see, yeah. you see me when I'm talking to that elderly guy, that's Ken. Uh, who always okay. had, yeah. uh, who you know, always had just a little bit of information to pass on to you that you might not have had. Um, yes. He knew what the script was going in, but he might just say before it starts, he might want to add this, this, and this. Uh, why don't we try this? And he, and he was like certainly super open, but always like very hands on. Uh, and I yeah. like that because he guided me through that era. It was pretty tough at first, so he, I, my yeah. TV experience was next to nothing, and he helped me along a great deal there. Yeah, fair and good point because you don't want to drive into the ditch here. The guy's oh. keeping you on the road, right? Basically. <laughs> That's so, right. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. And then you did a bunch of other stuff, like you did the movie segments and and the soundtracks and right so and, the, and the specials. We did those specials too all the time. Yeah. Um, the uh, movies that came later in Good Rockin's um, okay uh, era. The we were invited on a movie junket. The very first one was. Uh, Steve Gutenberg in the bedroom window. He did that Hitchcock thing following up mm. uh, his role on Police Academy. So it's a young Steve. Uh, and it was in San Francisco. I had never been on a movie junket before. I had no idea how they worked. Um, and uh, so they f- the, the movie company flew you out, put you in a beautiful hotel, um, You know, paid mm. for all your meals, whatever you needed. You'd watch the movie. And then the next day you would interview the stars of the movie. Uh, and because we were a presenter and not a critic, it was pretty easy for us. It was all about... Uh, tell me about, you know, the role you play, uh, what you liked about the role, uh, working with the director stuff, very softball type questions, but all in the the final goal, just to present the movie to you. And then you decide if you like right. it or not. And so right. that opened the door to a ton of that. It was almost like once every two weeks I was flying somewhere uh, oh, nice. to do and talking with, you know, big stars and yeah. again, still pretty young and stupid. Uh, Mike Kozak and, and Marco Braddock are two members of the successful recording act Tease in the late 70s, and they left an indelible mark on the Canadian music scene. The band has recently regrouped, and they're resurrecting the Tease sound, which has delighted many of their fans. It must be neat for you guys to sort of relive this. Do you feel like you're 18 again sometimes? <laughs> yeah, I'd say, well, well, not so much 18, but it's just it's, a, it's kind of amazing that um, after a 40-year absence, you know, that we, uh, we managed to, uh, to pull it back together. It's been it's, yeah. it's been a lot of fun actually, but um, you can imagine you're you're a musician, Dan. I know I know about Absolutely, you. Absolutely. Yeah. And could you imagine yeah. like um like ducking out for forty years from, and then <laughs> and then reappearing reemerging at some point and uh and actually people remembered. I mean that, that was sort of the yeah. the amazing part. It was, it was meant originally just to be a one off sort of reunion thing, 
And then uh, yeah. there's a little more interest and a little more interest. Uh, COVID hit, so that set us back, obviously. But yeah. we're starting to find a... Uh, um, Europe, That's I cool. mean, like, um, Sweden called, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it speaks to the quality of it though. Right. Because you did make an impact, even though it was, it was like a, a starburst, as I suppose you could say, and you made your impact and then you went away, but the impact was still there. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, that speaks well of you guys. So I wanted to ask you, like going back to the beginning, you know, Coast, you're in the seventies and you guys are competent players. I mean, you, you, Mike, you're a great drummer and, and Marco, you're playing some, you're ripping it up real good there. So you guys must've had some training and some background. I can't speak for Marco, but I didn't really have much background at all other than like, like the way so many other guys learn. I learned from other people and learned from uh, records and, and, and just yeah. listening. I didn't have any formal training and, uh, I think it's evident, Dan, if you listen to the records, <laughs> I think you'll yeah. find <laughs> Well, so speaking to that, I have a few friends that did that. They would sit at home and play along to the Rush records and stuff, and they would get every every nuance, and then that was, that was their training. Yeah, so they well, said, I learned from the best. In the old days, you could you could take your record player and actually put like, you know, a couple quarters on the needle, and yeah. you would tape it down so it would slow the record down, and then you could learn the yes. licks if they were too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> now you can just hit a button and slow everything down but back yeah. then that's what you had to do <laughs> but you put in your time is my is my point my overriding point for someone like you mike even if you didn't have formal training you put in hours and hours of tracking those uh, songs and perfecting your craft um yeah well just um why well, we learned on the go i mean in a lot of cases right yep. like uh, we when we did our first album for three of us that was the first time we ever walked into a studio brian had been yep. in a studio cool. before in detroit and stuff but but we learned a lot. Uh, it was on the job training, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's great. What about you, Marco? How did you, did you take guitar lessons? Well, yeah, that's how I started. You know, I, I was probably about, uh, yeah, about nine years old and, uh, yeah. I did go to guitar lessons for a couple of weeks and then I, uh, got jumped by some bullies and they, oh, yeah. they stole my guitar. What? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then I wouldn't go back to guitar lessons. So that was, that was, that was it for the formal training, which, you know, yeah. probably, uh, you know, I wish I would have because, you know, it would make yeah. things a whole lot easier if you knew how to well. read when you're playing music. But no, ah. like Mike, I just, uh, you know, just learned. Yeah. I just know back then when we were young, there was like a lot of us hanging out. and We all wanted to play guitar. And you could yeah. notice, and you could notice really quick whether, you know, some guys would just keep trying and trying and trying and they just couldn't do oh, it. Yeah. And for me, in, yeah. you know, two, three, four weeks, I was already strumming and you know i think it comes naturally more to some uh, some people than other people we worked these jobs in the music store every dime we made went into the band in some way right to a rehearsal hall we we, we we were we um rented a whole floor of this old industrial building it was just an abandoned building but we rented the, the whole floor and we used to blow stuff up in there and it was crazy yeah, yeah. We, we absolutely pyro we could have burned that thing to the ground several <laughs> times. I don't know what we're doing. Oh, yeah. We're experimenting with the different powders and stuff. <laughs> okay, did you powder. do like the two nails with the momentary and stuff? Oh and yeah, the everything. Across the nails. We, we did all that too. That's totally illegal to do that. Now you'd get it's, thrown in jail. <laughs> it's insane the stuff we were doing. We played a high school once on, on, on Halloween and uh, we were putting um, flash pots inside pumpkins. 
And they were just blew up all over the audience. Kids were picking pumpkin seeds out of their hair. It was. I love it. So That's did we. So we thought it was us. <laughs> the only who didn't clean the pumpkins, and that was the question. Yeah. Why did we? Why we, had, we, we had a guy one time. He had a, an eaves trough, like a six foot piece of eaves trough, and he had a filament in it. And he put the whole oh, can of gunpowder in there. I couldn't believe it. It was like a wall. He goes, "It's a wall of flame, man." That's You're fantastic. Love it. Oh, I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> And then in years later, was, we've seen I mean, we've seen terrible accidents happen from uh, yeah. from pyro. And now you think, oh, that's what were we doing? You know. So your rehearsal space was like a concert space, exactly. right? Oh yeah. So was, you were ready to ready to rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was, we would yeah. we would invite the student councils or whoever you know for nice. the, the school would come and we'd audition there and we hook up all the flashbots and we would yeah. show up in this. Yeah, it was great. In all this chaos, you know, when we met Donald K. Donald. And we were still on the road with Stan and things weren't going well. And we got back and we were kind of broke and we were starving and there was no alternator in our car. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Donald was just a name to us. And we knew he was at the RPM convention, but I had nobody to call. So we called <clears throat> Donald, you know, he says, oh. things are really rough. And, and, you know, he finally agreed to meet us. He, we were in Toronto for a minute cause that's where we were living. And so we, uh, we got in the subway in our ripped jeans and, and two cents in our pocket. And we went downtown to meet Donald. And that's where he was uh, sitting with the Rolling Stones. And you instantly know, well, this is the guy you want to be with. I mean, Donald was a power to be reckoned with. And Yeah, the kind of the backstory on that is um, Donald was in town showing the Rolling Stones around to the clubs. because They were looking for a club to record at. And that ended up being the Elma Combo. So go, it was very, it was very quiet. They told us, don't say anything. Right. But we come into this beautiful hotel. I think it was called the Windsor arms. And we say, yeah. and we and they say, okay, meet us in the, in the restaurant or something. So we'll go in the restaurant. It's very, very fancy. And, and we're, we're bombs basically. <laughs> we're sitting there, we're sitting there and we're talking and we're like animated because we're, we're upset. We say, oh, why are we not doing this and this and this? And we're just like, we're just kind of just yeah. ranting. We're ranting. And as we're ranting, I look at the back of the room and I see a guy walk in who's kind of looking scruffy as us, right? <laughs> and, uh, and he's walking, <laughs> guy's walking towards the table. And I'm thinking he's getting closer. And I say, that guy looks like Ron Wood. I said, he looks, I said, I'm a big, yeah. I'm a big Faces fan. I love the Faces. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, and then he gets yeah. closer. I said, the guy knows he looks like Ron Wood. He cuts his hair like Ron Wood. <laughs> and then, then he gets right up to the table and he and he blurts out something that's very Ron Wood. I stood up, I pointed at his face, I said, "You're Ron Wood." <laughs> and he, he, he obviously knew he was Ron Wood. And he's laughing. And, stuff. and then a few minutes later, the, the meeting's over at that point because now they tell us what's going on. Now we're just watching the door yeah. to see who comes in next. And of course, it's Mick Jagger. All of a sudden, we forgot about the career. Now we're just we want to meet the Stones. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Mick yeah. Jagger comes in and just looking like. Uh, vintage you know 1977 yeah. Mick Jagger it's just cool as hell and uh yeah he was very how old were you guys at the time oh, 20, 20 years yeah old, right? 20 yeah yeah, so yeah. 2021 20, and it was that was that was the first little brush with uh real stardom there yeah. you know and we're we're kind of amazed you know so then you got your you got your hit which helped and you you had uh, some success in Canada and then that that was also a modest hit in the US as well no no, we had we had nothing going some... in the U.S. at that point. Yeah. We, we didn't have a okay. deal, um, but we got interest out of Japan of all things. We started getting mail. The office, right? I gave. Him, I remember going in the office in in Montreal at on Uville Street, 
And uh, I think it was like even we were talking about Keith Brown earlier. I think it was Keith Brown. He says, uh, Kozak, who do you know in Japan? And I said, I don't know anybody in Japan. He says, we're getting mail. Oh. You're getting mail from Japan, right? And um, yeah, and sure enough. And then the mail started coming crazy. A lot of mail and we're getting gifts and all these other things. And and we find out. Only that, for Mike and Chuck, though. Not for Brian <laughs> and I. I Brian and I used to just, you know, sheepishly go to the mailbox in the morning at Aquarius yeah. and we'd look in the mailbox and it'd be empty again. That's an exaggeration. And then, and then, <laughs> and then Kozak and Chuck are leaving with it. They look, they look like Santa Claus or something. They got this bag hanging over there, the back, you know, filled with gifts and everything. That's funny. So that's the way that flew. Did Aquarius send records over there? Like, did you have airplay? You must have had airplay. And, and well, what happened was there. they, they, uh, yeah, let me say something here, Mike. Yeah, they sure. went to this convention in Europe, probably hooked up with some Japanese and a Japanese independent, which was going to be our label in the future. And that worked out beautiful, right? But at the same time, I wanted to tell the story because now 40 years later, we're going to Sweden. So I, yeah. you know, so someone in Sweden the other day says to me, he says, you know, you're really, you're really popular like in Sweden. And I go, well, why? And, and apparently when back all those years ago, when – when they did the Japanese deal in Europe, Aquarius Records was talking to Sweden and Aquarius dumped mm. all the product from that first record all to Sweden. Oh. <laughs> you know? oh. So, so we're talking now today and, and you know, I guess That's funny. everybody in Sweden has a copy of uh, Tease's first record. <laughs> <laughs> today I'm very honored to have as my special guest, recording artist and Canadian icon, Connie Calder. You know, when I was starting out, I'm, I was a woman in the West, to even just imagine having a career as someone mm. who wasn't just banging a tambourine in some bar band, and to right. have that as a musician, be able to create and be able to do all this stuff was was really, um, un, you know, seemed like a bit of a dream. My family sang; they were musical. My dad ran the church choir, and singing. You know, we sang Grace every day to give you an idea of you know, music was always okay. part of that part of the world. And I, I really liked acting. I got into theater for a while. I studied theater at university. So I guess I, I always enjoyed that. I, I liked performing. I did. I would do yeah. my aunt. I had this aunt who once once actually confessed to me that the only real dream she had in her life was to be part of a Chautauqua. But by the time she got old enough, they it was the 30s and they died. And so she she had regular mm. jobs all her life. But she would do recitations at you know, weddings and things like that. And so I was roped in and, and loved every minute of it. So I think it was always yeah. kind of part of my, I just like doing it. I like performing. And, and I well, think so, that so you, has kept me going through the years. If I didn't love doing it, there's no way you'd put up with all the stuff you have to put up with to do it here. It's a yes, big country. It's good, a long distance. Yeah. Good point. Because if you don't love it, then you wouldn't put up with the BS that goes along with it, which there's, and, there's and the, plenty the number of, of people that told you that you can't do it. You know, that's really it. Yeah. A lot of it, at least from my perspective, a lot of it was the, oh, you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. You know, nobody's done that before. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. if you aren't the kind of person that that encourages, maybe because I came from pioneer stock or something, oh yes, I can make a farm out of this piece of dry land. Maybe I wouldn't have uh, kept going or survived. But the bottom line is that, that when you do it, you love it's it's wonderful. I love performing, and so that's yeah. what's kept me going. That's what's kept my career going. When you don't have, because I've kind of I'm in the kind of skirted the fringe of the music industry. You know, I had lots of fans. I sold lots of records, but I was never like on a record company. You know, I had yeah. airplay. You know, so I was lucky enough to kind of carve a career in that unusual corner of the music industry, and as a result. I'm still doing it and I still have my songs and I still have my music and I have all my yeah, publishing and all of that great. stuff when content is king. nice.
You did a Bachelor of Fine Arts, yes. right? Which, which is is a whole grab bag of things: singing, acting, writing, dancing. I loved every minute of it. And it's probably because I started out in theater. It's why I really enjoyed being on stage, and it's maybe why I was different on stage at that. Hmm. When I got on stage, I was, you know, con- I told stories. I connected. I, you know, I was, yeah. I was happy to be out there. That's one thing. The- there's a couple of things theater teaches you. One is that it is a privilege to be on stage, to be have an audience watching you. And that is a wonderful lesson to learn. And two is that you make use of every moment out there and anything you can do, sing, dance, talk, entertain, make them laugh, make them cry, whatever, that that's your job. And I, I really like that attitude towards music and performing. And I think sometimes musicians don't get that, didn't get that kind of training or that attitude. But it's not always, I mean, most musicians do love being on stage, don't get me wrong. But for me, I really appreciated that way of looking at it, that way of looking at the stage. Every show counts, every show, whether you've got five people in the audience or five million people. I saw Tina Turner in Regina. I can Tina Turner when Mm. I was young. They came and did a show at the Center of the Arts in Regina. I think probably was in high school or whatever. And if there was ever a show you could have walked through for I can Tina Turner, it would have been the Center of the Arts in Regina, Saskatchewan, you know. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but she put out, she did this amazing show and it changed my life. The way I viewed performing, I went, oh, yeah. for for me, it's like, there's hey, there's a world out there I know nothing about. There's a musical world out there I've never, I've known nothing about. I went to the Regina Public Library and got Aretha Franklin records, you know? So oh, yeah. every chance yeah. that you, that attitude, that every chance you perform, it, you have to give it your all. You don't always hit the mark sometimes, you know, sometimes you yeah. miss the mark or you don't do the best show possible, but that's your goal. Being a woman is very different because you have, in those days, you had very few examples, very mm-hmm. few mentors. Maybe, you know, we had um, Joni Mitchell and people like that and Joan Baez. And so we saw these solo singers. I never thought of being, I never was, I always wanted to do my own music. I think that was it. Right. I was always making up songs. And I had that, my brother had a Brothers Four record and he played folk music. So I think that folk scene created the idea that I could be a solo singer songwriter and it allowed me to get out and do my own thing and survive in the early years because it was just me I had to pay for. It. So what did you do? Were you playing coffee houses and, and just- Yeah, and, and concert series. I play everything, you know. I'd have played a bingo if they'd asked me. You know, yeah. I just made a I just made a rule. I will you know, I'll open for anybody. I will never turn down a gig no matter how inappropriate I think it is for me. Yeah. I was a solo singer, songwriter, and I opened for Down Child Blues Band with like bikers oh. in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But you know, that's that's what you know, if you if you can't get out there and somehow make that work for you then then you gotta oh. get better and to the point where you do. Yeah. And you know, as a woman out there, there were so there were so few women doing it and as a re- I mean, literally, I would get, oh, we've got our one woman's act at this festival. Not, no no mm. lie. But, and I'm not oh. the only one either. So yeah. we all, there was a feeling that you were really breaking down the doors to what you had to sing. But the other wonderful part of that was, is that as a songwriter, I was writing songs that nobody had written before. I was writing songs with a perspective that nobody knew. So it's like you've got the element of surprise. And the women in the audience heard stuff they hadn't heard before that rang true for them. So yeah, that was the fabulous part is that all of a sudden th- they're going, oh my God, that's exactly how I feel. Oh my God, I'm laughing at that. Oh, jerks. Oh my God, I felt that so many times. And as a result, there was a, a well of support for me because I was doing something nice. someone else wasn't doing. And I think felt like we were, we were doing important stuff and bre- you yeah. know breaking down barriers. And some way now at my age, I feel the same thing. And now I'm still saying, no, wait a minute, I deserve to be up here too. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm older, but yeah, maybe I have something to say. And- you know, when you started out, what was your goal? 
if I had talked to you 40 years ago, 50 years ago and said, what is it that you want to do? What, what was I wanted to be able to keep doing it. I wanted to be an artist all my life. I wanted to be a musician. And just that dream alone was pretty big at the time. I wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to do my own stuff. I wanted to sh be proud of what I did. And I wanted to be able to tour and tour big festivals and perform for people and, you know, be able to have a career in a country that's, you know, huge. You had to be able to get a number of people. I wanted to be able to play good shows. That was it. And when I didn't fit the mold very easily, and I liked that as a person, like as an artist, I like, well, I'm not different than everybody else. That's good. But sometimes you kind of wish that you would, you know, everything would be easier. But as a result, uh, you know, I'm still doing it and I still own all my publishing and own all that stuff too. So Which is even great. though the road yeah. is a little more circuitous and a little more difficult, perhaps, um, I think in the end it worked for me as a, as a person and as a writer. You seem very self-directed, like you started your own record label. That's pretty cheeky for yeah. someone who's, you know, you've got uh, all the major labels out there. And that was the big goal back then, as you well know, is to get a deal with the major yeah, label. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I was from the so West. So you start your own label. I was from the prairies. I wasn't in Toronto. And maybe it's because I come up through independent theater. Like I was started on theater and theater yeah. companies and, oh, well, just make your own show and we'll pull it together. Like that was kind of the, the attitude that was going through the Canadian theater scene in Theater mm. Prosperity that I worked for. And there was, a, there was a bit of a movement happening, certainly in the folk scene, of because I wasn't, uh, you know, the typical girl group, I guess, or whatever that is. I just didn't fit the mold. I mean, when I look back and I think how I hardly ever had anybody offer to manage me. I have a great agent. I had a great agent that I found through, uh, through Stan Rogers, and he's been with me, still with me now, that, oh. you know, has... Uh, you know, nice. booked me everywhere for my entire career. But, you know, finding management in those days, there was so little of it. I think they just didn't, you know, nobody really paid attention. We were from the prairies. Like that was yeah. like the, you know, large flat place before Banff. You know, most people just, there was <laughs> like, it's very different now, thankfully, that there's a lot more organization. There's music associations. There's, you know, there's connections and grants and, yeah. you know, the only thing you could, I mean, the only award you could get in the old days was a Juno. That was it. Hmm. And so you fought your way up and tried to get, and thankfully there was, um, you know, we had festivals. They were the, like the first festival, Vancouver Folk Festival that I got hired for. You know, that was like the, one of the big ones was Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Mariposa. And if you, those were the ones you really wanted to get. And they were, and, and rightly so, because they introduced you to a huge audience. Yeah. And some guy hired me and seen me somewhere in Alberta doing something and hired me to play something at Simon Fraser and dragged this guy down here. God bless him and said, you have to hire her. She's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. She's new. She's singing stuff. She says this song called jerks. And he hired me and I got the five thirty slot, you know, nice. solar singer songwriter in, in a land of, you know, women in tie dyed hand dyed things living in communes and playing the dulcimer i was there in a leather skirt and cowboy boots and so i was different and then i i sang uh you know jerks which was really a song that opened up and people just like went what what the yeah. heck is that song so for me that was the you know that was a real turning point getting that festival and um just touring you know general i just toured 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 my special guest, singer, guitar player, songwriter, and Canadian music legend, Gary Felgard, an award-winning singer-songwriter and a champion of vanishing values and the frontier spirit. He's a Juno Award winner, and in 2005, he was inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. You were born in Saskatchewan, though. You're a, you're a prairie boy originally. 
I'm a prairie farm boy. Yeah. Good for you. And proud of your Canadian heritage and the, that pioneer. I guess there's just something about that working class spirit, that pioneer spirit that just resonates with the people that came out of that area. Yeah. I, you know, I realized a long time ago that I, I wasn't cut out to be a farmer. Hmm. So I, yeah. and, uh, of course, music was uh, the only thing, other thing I knew how to do. Yeah. Except I wanted to be a cowboy in the worst way. But anyway, <laughs> I remember when I was about, probably about six years old, my mother had uh, bought from the Simpsons catalog yeah. a guitar with the picture of the Lone Ranger on it. <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, that was, <laughs> oh, I wish I had that guitar today. I don't know whatever happened to it. from. Yeah. But anyway, that was... Uh, that was sort of the beginning, and I would strum away on that thing, and of course, half the strings broke, Yeah, and I, I had to use a knife, uh, a metal knife, to slide up and down the strings, because it actually was a Hawaiian guitar. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. Tried to press my little fingers down against the frets, and yeah. I couldn't do it, but anyway, that was my that was my beginning, and then I would oh. write little little songs, and, and uh, I would climb on my horse, and yodel my way across the prairies going for the cows and, and so listening just, to Wilf, Wilf Carter on the old battery radio. Of course, yes. Yeah. And, so, uh, well, when I watch you play, though, you use a thumb pick and you and you do quite nice finger picking and stuff. Did you just kind of figure that out and like go pick the chords and stuff and just do... Our yeah, I, I I realized, I guess a long time ago, that if I, if I played with my thumb and that my fingers as a melody, I could get away without a band. Yeah. So... It, it wasn't, actually, it wasn't to make a living in the business. I, I didn't really make a living properly until I got rid of the band and, just, right. and played a solo. So that was, I did a lot of, lot of years playing in lounges and bars and yeah. whatnot, some of it solo and, and some of it with the, with the band. Coming from the prairies, I wrote a lot of songs about the prairies, yeah. you know, 10 years old and barefoot. Yeah, the great songs. I wrote all those songs yeah. Before that, I spent a few years with a chainsaw, too, so yeah, it was all part of the songwriting research, I guess. You're considered a country artist or a folk artist or a minstrel, I guess, or a singer-songwriter, and, and you even have some Celtic influence. I, I, I've heard some songs of yours that, that have a sort of a Celtic flavor, too. Yeah, I think it was all all done by instinct, and uh, I tried to get away. <laughs> Tried to get away from the self pity songs. Yeah, there you go. You know, for a while, that's what I was writing the self pity songs. Oh, poor me! I'm out on the road. It's you know very lonesome and everything. But hey, that was that was my choice. A long time ago, my yeah. wife and I, we got together. Of course, we did for the last sixty six years. We got together. Wow. And and it was uh, well. What do we do? Yeah. Do I go back to the bush and uh, work with a chainsaw? Was my back is played out? Yeah. Uh, no, the only other thing I knew how to do was sing songs. Yeah. Write songs. There you go. So we decided, yeah, this is what I do, and this is this is what I'm going to continue to do. So yeah. Oh, good. Out on the road with the bus and the band and the whatever. Yeah. The, the thing that impressed me with you too, like you're the genuine sort of prairie boy singing from experience. You, you know, you you did cattle drives, right? You did ride. I got to ride with a lot of the old time cowboys, and hmm. mainly in in the Kamloops area. And, uh, you know, my wife and I, we lived southwest of Prince George, okay. BC, out of the old, old Blackwater River Road, and, and uh, we were there for many, many years, and oh, we were wow. right out in the bush, and it yeah. was just, uh, yeah. So, were you ranching out there, or were we just, that was... No, where... sawmill, sawmill chainsaw, okay. chainsaw, yeah, so there's, wow. there's, there's a couple of songs in there, too, 
One was don't change the color of your collar with the working man song. Yeah. So I had a few of those. Wow. So you've had quite the progression. Like you started out on the prairies, but you didn't want to be mm-hmm. a farmer. Then you ended up being a logger or, or getting a chainsaw in your hand. I mean, heading up the side of a hill with a five foot chainsaw is not for the faint of heart either. No, <laughs> certainly wasn't. No. But I, you know, I, I, got, I got lucky because I got to know people like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Howie Vickers. Of course, yeah, I've interviewed, I had him on the yeah. podcast, yeah. Did you? Yeah. yeah. Well, he was uh, an instigator of, of my music. Nice. And uh, he produced, actually, several things for me. Yeah. And, of course, he had access to uh, to uh, all the session players that played at Little Mountain Sound. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I got to record at Little Mountain in, the, in their off hours, right, when they weren't uh, recording mainstream people. Yeah. I got to go in there with Howie and... Ron Obvious, engineers, and, and uh, had arrangers like David Sinclair, and who played on many sessions yeah. for me. Yeah, we were the house band at Merritt Mountain Fest for many years, and I met David up there. David has has passed away now. For the people who don't know, for our listeners, he was in the band yeah, Straight we, Lines, and he yeah, passed away was, 2018, I guess, right? Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, and he he produced uh, several songs for me, and and arranged several songs for me. Yeah. One in particular was a song I wrote called uh, I Apologize, and that was when, uh, 2008, I think, when the government made the apologies at the First Nations yes. to the residential yeah. schools. So David was and part of that. He was part of that, that yeah. recording that I made, and it, it, got, it made some waves across Canada and yeah. Native communities. I was going to ask if you ever met Ian Tyson. Did you ever work with Ian Tyson? Yes, worked with him several times. Okay, good. Uh on my on my own, I think I I opened for Ian at the Windspear okay. Center in in Edmonton yeah. once many many years ago, nice. and uh, then I I actually headlined the Windspear Center too on my own. Very nice. So that was that was a big thrill for me. People coming to you know there's hundreds of people out there and the, they all came to see me and paid their money and I, I just like very nice. It doesn't get more satisfying than that for a, a songwriter. And I was going to ask you what your connection with Valdi is, but Valdi was well known for, for being oh, an islander, yes. right? Yeah. So. You know, I, I've met him several times over the years, and it was mainly through a, a song I wrote about an old Martin guitar called Me and Martin. Hmm. And Valdi recorded it. And, oh. like, that was, to me, at that time, that was the biggest thing that ever happened to me. Oh, nice. And then a few years later, we, uh, we got together and, and uh, we did a show together. Yeah, and uh, separately. I mean, we just we were on the same stage yeah. for several times before we actually saw. Hey, let's record. Let's go on tour and yeah. whatnot. So we did, and it was uh, <clears throat> a great experience. And that was for about at least ten years. We yeah. did the Okanagan tour uh, yeah, every yeah. year for about ten years, and it was uh, it was great. You had a, sort of a similar outlook, and the the music was really mm-hmm. compatible, and you sound real good together. So. I guess when you're used to playing by yourself, and, I, and I've done that lots too, you do, there's nothing sort of crowding your music, but then when you find somebody you really relate to, it's like, it just makes it better. That's right. Well, yeah. very cool. So I was going to ask you about that, because you, you mentioned earlier about the bands and, and how expensive they are, obviously, and you, when you're on the road, you got to pay yeah. for everything, right? So did you have, you know, an actual band, or were you just using studio guys or a combination? No, it was a co- well, probably a combination. A lot of musicians over the years, and so. yeah. But I, I, you know, so many years I we went on tour, and 
at the end of the tour, Lynn and I would look at each other and then, well, but the only money we made was CD sales. Right. So uh, that's what we survived on. And uh, we thought, this is not working. Yeah. We're... uh, we're losing. I mean, some people yeah. don't realize the costs involved, but every day, like the, the layoff days, you got to pay the living out expense, you got to pay for the rooms, you got to pay for the yeah. gas and the travel. Like, you're, everything's coming off the top. So it's, it's yeah. tough. Yeah, and then uh, agents, agents <laughs> and managers. Oh, yeah. You know, manager that I had, Brian Ferriman, he it was so ironic because we had a meeting once with uh, other people that he was managing too. We are all in the... But anyway, Brian was on the... 10th, 12th floor, I don't know, of the Four Seasons Hotel. And uh, Lynn and I slept down in our van <laughs> in the park in the parking lot. Oh, and that was, uh, yeah. well, it was so ironic that that's the way it worked. Yeah. Wow. And the manager got to pay him and pay the agent. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And all the musicians and the hotels and everything. And then, uh, you know, crowds were good, but it didn't really make that much difference. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.